Welcome to the Heman Pulse, the podcast that allows you to keep your fingers on the pulse of all things hematology. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan, a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I've been hosting this podcast since December 2022. Thank you for joining me on the Hemonk Pulse today. My guest is Dr. Rafael Fonseca, professor and chief innovation officer at the Mayo Clinic. Rafael is one of the gurus in multiple myeloma. He is innovative in science and outside of science, has done a remarkable work in myeloma translational research. And I've tasked him with a very tough task today. He's going to talk to us about minimal residual disease or measurable residual disease. What is it in multiple myeloma? How do we measure it? What are the controversies? And how does that fit into the newer therapies of myeloma, such as bispecific antibodies and CAR T cellular therapies? Let's start by quick intro as to who you are. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine I'm asking you to introduce yourself because there's nobody in hematology that does not know the Fonseca, but let's try. No, Chatty, you're very kind. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, I think importantly for the audience, just um, that I'm uh, a hematologist, I'm chief innovation officer at Mayo Clinic, but with a lifelong commitment to the study and the treatment of myeloma and related conditions. And obviously a big time aficionado to the use of MRD as, as a way that uh, we can better gauge the success of our treatment. So I'm very much looking forward uh, to our interaction. I want to start with MRD. What is the concept of MRD for those who um, just simplify MRD conceptually? Sure. As, as you know, the acronym stands for minimal residual disease or measurable residual disease. People spend a lot of time discussing those things, but it's really... I mean, there's nothing exceptional about this. This is just refining the tools that we have to measure for the possibility of residual disease in, in diseases like myeloma. And, and this can be done in multiple ways. You know, you can do it um, through um, uh, technologies like flow cytometry, more recently through next generation sequencing, but also through the measurement of residual monoclonal peptides in the serum of a person. And what I mean by that is, you know, we're, we went from the SPEP to the immunofixation, we added the free light chains, but now we're doing things like mass spec analysis of the peripheral blood. So what it is, is just a term that describes uh, deeper sensitivity with the tools that clinicians can use to measure the level of a response that a patient is having, which I would argue, of course, provides you a more accurate description of the level of response you have in a, in a person. Is there an agreement how you measure it? First of all, I hear this often. There, there does not need to be an agreement. I will say we have tests that are well validated by um, laboratories across the world. I'll start by saying, for instance, for flow cytometry, uh, pathologists are very, very comfortable with this. And many of them have lab laboratory uh, developed tests, the LDTs. Uh, there's some parameters that take it to a sensitivity uh, of up to 10 to the minus six, uh, the so-called Euroflow that has been primarily pioneered uh, by European groups like Dr. Paiva. Uh, in the United States, we also have access to uh, the next generation sequencing platform. And we have uh, a company, Adaptive Biotechnologies, which by the way, I work with them as a consultant to them for the audience to know. But Adaptive uh, has an assay that is um, uh, not only FDA approved, but it's also covered by Medicare. And, and what they do is they, they they get the original sequence of the tumor, the DNA fingerprint, if you may, 
And that same sequence is used in subsequent analysis to uh, go to a sensitivity of, of uh, 10 to the minus six. So one cell in a million. Uh, so again, it's, it's uh, you know, people say we need to standardize. It is standardized. It's an FDA approved test. It's available. Anyone who wants to do it can do it. You don't need anything special other than your pathology lab to have a contract with the company so the samples can be sent. And you need to go through the workflows of how do you collect those samples and those things. But it's, it's not anything different from what has been done in the past with other pathology tests. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess when I say is there an agreement, part of me is, I think, just the pragmatic person in me, that tests are evolving rapidly and the capabilities and the sensitivities of these tests do change with time. The problem I see, and maybe the counterpoint that a lot of people say, you with increased sensitivities of these tests, you might detect a clone at such a small level that may that may have been never destined to become clinical disease. So sure. it's basically you're just measuring how strong and powerful that test is. You know, you uh, back in the day, people doing two color flow, then four color flow, then six color flow, then eight color flow. So you know what I mean. So, so that's where, like, how 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 do you respond to that? Yeah, first of all, I, I I see your point. That's not really a technical question. That's more of a clinical interpretation and decision making. You know, based on what you have for that clinical information. In general, in medicine, for whatever we do, whether it's through laboratory testing or imaging, we're better off by having more precise testing. Uh, you know, I once went to our radiologist and I asked him, "Is there a situation where you, you would prefer to have a lower resolution MRI or CT scan?" And the answer was no. I mean, the only reason you don't do more resolution is because you know tests may be more expensive or the equipment is less readily available. But of course, you know, if you look at what we used to do with a CAT scan, and in, in, in fact, I just saw the first CAT scan that was used here in the the United States at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. The, the quality of the images was very poor. Nowadays, you can do much better. So it's just the same thing. It's not the technology. What, what, what matters is how people interpret those results and what it means. I think what we have learned from, from MRD is that through multiple studies, we see that attainment of very deep responses leads to better long-term outcomes. In fact, for those that would require the highest level of evidence, we have three meta-analysis that show that is associated with better outcomes, both progression-free survival and overall survival. So so uh, the test, you know, they will continue to get better. And, and I think one of my goals for today is for people not to think of it as an exceptional test. You know, it's the free light chain. When it first came about, we didn't have debates whether we should use a free light chain or not, whether the free light chain was ready for prime time or not. And nowadays, I don't think there's anyone that could imagine the modern management of myeloma or amyloidosis without the, the, the free light chain test. It's just, you know, it just has to be understood. You have to know what it means. What do you do and so forth? So to go back to the imaging analogy, you know, I would imagine as people, uh, you know, for instance, develop more sensitive uh, CT scans, as they did that on the chest, they had to see, well, you know, maybe the nodules that have some evidence of calcium, we're not going to worry about. If there's new nodules that we don't really know what they mean. But over time, people have learned that, you know, maybe you have to track those, maybe you don't. Uh, we realize sometimes in some situations there might be, you know, a diagnosis of something that was not going to lead to anything. All of that is applicable to myeloma and related conditions, but it is a clinical knowledge, not the test itself, uh, that that you know is responsible for that part of, of of how we behave. So then, in multiple myeloma, I mean, today as you treat patients, is your goal always to push until you achieve 
MRD negativity or is that depends on the patient? Because you could imagine a scenario where the patient is in a clinical remission, they're doing okay and they have no symptoms, but you still see something when you do the MRD test and you have to do additional treatment to eradicate that. And that treatment comes in with some toxicity. So of what course. are situations where you push for MRD negativities versus situations where you are hap- not happy, but you are you tolerate MRD positivity in the absence of clinical and morphologic disease? Sure. No, that's, that's a very important point and a, and a distinction that needs to be made. First of all, I think, uh, as, as we know, there's different levels of tolerance uh, that patients may have to uh, the various treatments. And the most classic example has been this distinction between those that are transplant eligible or not. So regardless of whether you even test for MRD or not, we know that the treatments have to be tailored to the tolerance and the fitness of the person. So that's very, very important, point number one. The specific action a- answer to your question is, is, without a doubt, in my clinical practice, and I, I will be very careful on how this is worded. I always word it this way. Attainment of MRD is my primary initial goal. And I will always say safely, because everyone's going to say, well, you don't want to be treated, you know, treating patients nearly willio for too long or introduce too much toxicity until, you know, the, the patient just can't take it anymore. No, the safe attainment of MRD negativity should be the primary goal of therapy. And the reason for that um, is really that we have seen in the medical literature that uh, the attainment of MRD is associated with better prognosis. Number two, it doesn't matter when you get to MRD, whether it's at the beginning, that may be, for instance, after a stem cell transplant, or several months later, it makes a difference if you become MRD negative. And third, for uh, patients who have more challenging biology, patients who have these high-risk markers, uh, if they can become MRD negative, we know that there's an important subset of them for whom the prognosis approximates, or it seems to be the same as if they have standard risk disease. We can change the natural history of that, uh, you know, of that disease. Now, we have to be very careful with what we add, right? So if we add a medication that has significant toxicity or inconvenience, um, I think there needs to be a pause if you're going to do more of that. Uh, an example might be let's say a second transplant, we can talk more about that, or it might be, let's add uh, an intravenous, you know, protosome inhibitor like our filosomep. It does take some thoughtful deliberation if that's the right thing to do. Maybe a little bit less so for things such as uh, monoclonal anti-CD38 antibody, as could be daratumumab, and certainly uh, uh, lenalidomide as well too. And I don't minimize any of them. They all have their own profiles for toxicities, but there's some of them that are, you know, um, less additive, if you may, to that toxicity. Now, it's important to remember, I always tell people, Chatty, it's like, you know, why do we treat myeloma with four cycles of therapy and transplant? And why is it that deviating from that should be should be considered, you know, abnormal? And there's there's no good reason. The only reason we do that is a, is a practice that was, uh, you know, uh, applied, uh, adopted from the past. When we treated myeloma 30 years ago or 40 years ago, it was that chemotherapy for which you couldn't do more than four cycles. Back then, we did 12 days of dexamethasone per cycle, so everyone had steroid myopathy and had all the neurocognitive toxicity. You had vincristine, adding uh, neuropathy, not much in efficacy. And then you had the cumulative adramycin. And, and then transplant, you know, transplant came to be somewhat through serendipity to be one of the tools that we use for myeloma. So to deviate from a standard that is four cycles on transplant and say, well, that's, you know, something sacred, I think it's wrong. It's not like it 
I always use the words, it's not like it came from a mountain of wisdom for physicians to be told, this is how you should treat myeloma. We, we know very clearly if you leave disease behind, as I just alluded, for instance, in the patients of high-risk disease and you cross your fingers, it's kind of wishful thinking. I mean, there is no reason that if a patient is responding to a specific line of, of you know, or type of therapy, that you would not consider going, going further on that. So for me, that's why it's so, so exciting. Now, let me make another distinction, which I think is critical. Yes, we know that there are patients that will have residual disease that do well. But you know when you know that? Only after the fact, only years later, because it's only year la years later that we talk about patients saying, yes, I have a patient and I have those patients that will do very well, that have either MRD positivity or uh, more frequently. So we're going to talk about years, may have a tiny M spike or some abnormality. That's great. We love those situations. I have patients I have transplanted, you know, more than decades ago, and they continue to do well despite residual disease. But guess what? I don't know that in the upfront part. So when I start, my goal has to be, again, and I'll say it safely, to be able to position the patient so we can have that MRD negativity. You mentioned such an important thing, but I want to I wanna take it from there because you did say you don't know that up front. I, I think you guys in the myeloma world have done a remarkable job in categorizing myelomas into the high risk, the low risk, and, and all of that. You have all kinds of prognostic and predictive models to tell us, for example, which patient is high risk versus low risk and, and things of that nature. Are these not predictive also of MRD positivity? And can you tailor, for example, your goals to say, I will only aim for MRD negativity in the higher risk disease patient where I know they have the highest risk of mortality and maybe spare the lower risk patients additional therapy because they have a, a you know less chance of dying from the sure. disease? That's a very, very important point. The short answer is no. So we just looked at the data in our center where, where we looked at the likelihood of becoming MRD negative by genetic subtype. And there's no clear distinction that you can make according to the genetic subtype. So in many ways, two corollaries come from that. Number one is what is the depth of response below that MRD negative threshold? And number two is what is the ability of that to be sustained so that over time the patient remains MRD negative. We have learned from instance through the, through the master clinical trial uh, that patients that have two or more high-risk genetic features can do, you know, uh, worst. Of course, they have a lower, uh, you know, it's, it's it's not talked about in great detail in the master trial, but they have a lower likelihood of becoming MRD negative. So I wish that was the case that, you know, that we could tailor it a little bit more. I don't think we have that precision. Uh, even when people have looked at um, uh, the question, okay, if you have the genetic markers, even sophisticated genetic markers like gene expression, profiling, how much of the clinical variability can you explain? So in other words, what part is determined by what you see in the genetics and what part is just going to be a black box and unknown? And the reality is most studies fall short of 50%. Even when, you know, University of Arkansas used to do this with gene expression profiling, um, fancy mathematical models will say, all of what you can say is just pay more attention, maybe treat in a different way if they have high risk. Uh, but I have patients who have high-risk translocations and other markers who are doing very well long-term. Uh, we've learned, for instance, the 414, they're all not high-risk. Some of them are not. They do much better. And then we all have patients who, quote-unquote, were supposed to be, you know, more standard-risk myeloma, who unfortunately show an aggressive clinical, uh, you know, path since the beginning and don't have long-term survival. So, 
you can only take that you know so far uh there might be a future where we combine even more mrd attainment and risk classification maybe introducing the mutations where we can get more precision uh, but I don't think we will ever be absolutely perfect that that we can predict with with uh, that level of accuracy. Along the lines of the MRD negativity, MRD positivity, there has been an explosion of treatments and new therapies for multiple myeloma, including those who are proclaimed to have maybe you know higher chance of putting patients into MRD negativity versus sure. others who don't. And there will be, this is a completely different podcast to focus on all new therapies. We really won't have time. But I guess what I want to focus on is uh, biospecifics and maybe CAR-T a little bit, because I see a lot of those on social media and in the press, uh, the anti-BCMA and and other things. Um, Let's start by the, um, maybe the BCMA as a target and anti-BCMA. Any any thoughts there in terms of what's going on there and what, what are the issues there? Yes, no, I I think that's potentially a great example of how we're starting to use MRD determination, right? We, for our audience, we have the advent now of various CAR T cell construct, two of them being approved now, the IDA cell and the cell to cell product, and we have uh, I'll use the word a plethora now of bispecifics, you know, at least another ten different bispecifics, some of them to BCMA, some of them even to other targets in those cells uh, that have the capacity of inducing very very deep responses. And, and we have learned, for instance, that they can be so active that if you measure MRD one month out from the treatment, you can actually make some comments to the patient that, you know, it looks reassuring. It doesn't mean they're cured. It doesn't mean it will never come back. But if you become MRD negative at one month out from, from a CAR-T, uh, the likelihood of that being uh, of longer duration is, is much greater than if you're positive because... At this time, most of those patients have fairly aggressive and advanced disease. And if you still have residual disease after, let's say, a silta cell, if you treat someone with silta cell and you have residual disease post-therapy, there's a very good likelihood you unfortunately will have to be dealing with the next line of therapy soon after. Uh, but if you're a person who's been waiting for the CAR-Ts and then you suddenly find out that you're, you know, you're, you're MRD negative, and by the way, I'm going to add a comment here, which is actually pretty neat. Uh, my colleagues in Rochester have noted that if your free light chain levels are low, actually both of them, not only the one that relates to myeloma, but also the other one, which is an indirect indicator that you have BCMA being targeted in both normal and abnormal plasma cells, that's also a very important prognostic you know, factor. So for families who are struggling through this, just knowing that, knowing that you're MRD negative, I think gives you a little bit of extra peace of mind. And again, you have to be careful with the wording. I would never, or I hope none of my colleagues would go and tell patients, oh, you're cured. That's it. No. But the hue of your conversation is quite different if you achieve those, those landmarks. So let's talk more specific about uh, anti-BCMA. How how do these bispecifics work? There's a couple that I believe uh, were approved recently. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. I'm trying to, I don't want to. We, like we have only one approved, one bispecific approved, which is the clistamab. Uh, but hopefully we'll have more. I think we have on deck elranitumab, which is a secondary bispecific. Elranitumab is not approved yet. Not approved yet. But, you know, the results are are, are actually quite exciting. So let's, let's talk about these two. Sure. sure. So, you know, this bispecifics, for those who are not familiar, are just, uh, you know, biologics that have been developed such a, in such a way that they bring together a T-cell and a target cell. And actually, their design matters a lot. You know, where in the molecule they bind and what they do. But what I tell patients is, 
You know, bispecifics are just like a double-sided Velcro. What they do is they bring together the two cells. T cells are bullies. You put a T cell on top of something and it's going to go at it. There's, you know, extensive videos out there in the web that, you know, show how T cells can be so effective in controlling cancer cells. And the beauty of bispecifics is you can pull them off the shelf. So, you know, in theory, I could be seeing a patient right now and maybe later this today or tomorrow, the patient could be starting on bispecific therapy. Like CAR T cells, they have the possibility of inducing some of the responses that our immune system has with T cell activation, including the so-called CRS and the ICANS. Uh, the ones that target BCMA uh, have been uh, very effective. But, and the bispecifics, we think, have uh, a little bit of a milder profile, if you may, for this type of reactions for you know CRS and ICANS. Uh, most people in the community feel like we don't have uh, in general, as serious toxicity as perhaps we thought we would see with these two two aspects of of the bispecifics, uh, the response ranges are you know somewhere in the perhaps sixty to eighty plus percent of patients again fairly advanced patients in their course of their disease. So so they're very active, and when they respond, they can sometimes be quite durable. Um, Professor Motti reported at the EHA meeting the durability of elranatumab in patients who are responding, and the results are actually pretty. Uh, pretty interesting, those who, especially those who get a deep response. So, you know, we'll see how that uh, translates into control over time. Uh, the main thing, and I, I know probably it's not the main topic for today, but the main thing that people need to be aware is that our concern is not as much for CRS or ICANS, but it's more so in the proper prevention and management of infections. Because you have a, a construct that one of those bispecifics, first of all, is so effective that it can target many of these normal and abnormal plasma cells and also some late B cells. So you have humoral immunodeficiency. But also these T cells are being called to action all the time, right? So they get exhausted. So we just have T cell dysfunction, which also leads to T cell immunodeficiency. So patients can get things like PJP, reactivation of CMB, PML, and some other conditions. So I think the success with bispecifics will depend more on this, more on the prevention and management of infections but I'm very hopeful because, I mean, they're, they're, they're simple. So as people learn about them and know how to use them, my real hope is that more community hospitals or perhaps rural hospitals will, will be able to use them such that the number of myeloma patients that can be, uh, you know, treated with and that their lives could be improved should be much greater with bispecifics than with CAR T cells that require the centers of expertise. Rafael, do you think that... Basically, you guys are needing to decide whether the patient should get CAR T or bispecifics. Are we in a scenario where, like, I, I'm I'm struggling with this because I'm thinking, why would you even give CAR T if you have access to bispecifics, where CAR T has has so many challenges, manufacturing and all that X, Y, and Z? Or do you sense that there are patients where CAR T is better than bispecifics and and vice versa? Provided you have access to both. Right, right. It's a conversation that has just started. Right now, people favor the use of CAR T cells versus bispecifics um, as first and second, mostly uh, because we have a little bit more literature on what happens if you know if you get a CAR T cell after a bispecific, say, clinical trial, which shows a lower likelihood of response if you have the CAR T, and also because of the practicality that CAR Ts are supposed to be quote unquote one and done. Right. So if you have a patient who comes to us and gets a CAR-T and everything goes well and you know we have the response we want to achieve, 
then that person is really, uh, if you may, emancipated from the treatment center. They don't have to be coming back over and over for injections, which that would happen with, with bispecifics. So that's where people are. I, I think we still need more information to know what's the right sequence because on the other hand, you know, bispecifics will become readily available. So it's gonna be easier to use them. Now there's a, there's a very important clinical trial also, the CARTITUDE 4 clinical trial that was reported at ASCO and at IHA. And uh, you know, patients who were enrolled in that trial had very deep responses. And when it was compared in the early relapse, it was clearly better than the standard of care. So the FDA has this information. I don't think it's far-fetched to think that there's going to be a good number of patients with a multiple myeloma that will be proposed as CAR T-cell candidates now at the time of first relapse, you know, similar to what has been seen in lymphoma. So, so I think that can greatly increase the numbers, but it's it, like I said, it's a conversation that is just getting started. I don't think we know as much about the sequencing. That was actually my last question, Rafael, and I, I may, I, I want to make sure I understand it because I may have been confused about this. So as you know, in lymphoma, there have been trials to show that sometimes in certain situations, giving CAR-T in relapse DLBCL is better than autologous transplant. Sure. Is that what you're commenting on, that we are in a scenario where CAR-T potentially might replace autologous transplant in myeloma? Well, actually both things, because in lymphoma, as you know, you do the stem cell transplant for the first rescue, right? The first relapse. And, and you go with something like ARCHOP up front. So right now, it would be at the time of that first relapse, that's what the CARTITUDE 4 clinical trial addresses. Yeah, but the, the line of research right now is taking us to the first step, because in myeloma, we do transplant as part of frontline for those that are eligible. So there is a thought that patients may not need to go through a stem cell transplant if they have a CAR-T cell up front. So there's clinical trials that are looking at this. Now, I'll tell you something heretic. Uh, I think there's, I mean, first of all, the drugs we have are, are are really good. A lot of what we're doing are strategies and how do we line them up. There is a possibility that with best available treatments right now, and perhaps with CAR-Ts or even with bispecifics, uh, in the near future, patients who are newly diagnosed, it's going to start resembling more what you see with lymphoma, with something like ARCHOP. Um, I, I also cite another example, which I find fascinating in ALL, at the last ASH meeting, my colleague Mark Litzo presented the group uh, ECOG uh, uh, results for the use of bispecifics post, uh, in, you know, initial therapy in ALL patients, and the results are pretty astounding. I mean, you see those curves separate dramatically. So, if I had a way to do it, and assume I'm still doing stem cell transplants, I would love to start giving bispecifics post stem cell transplant to myeloma patients who have MRD positivity. I think we, I mean, and Chatty, I'm just going to try to kind of wrap this up. And I know, I know we're, we're going to come to, to an end, but I think the debate of cure versus control in myeloma is pretty much very clear that for those that are capable and those that are fit, the intention should be to try to lead to the deepest responses. Now, one has to be careful. I want to make sure that the older patients or those that are less fit are not shortchanged. We don't want to kind of engage in, in not really giving the best there is for older patients. That's a whole other conversation. But if I take, uh, you know, your prototype 65-year-old who's otherwise healthy and can go through a transplant, I think the goal for that person should be uh, to, to achieve that MRD negativity. And I think in time, we will see that uh, a number of those patients will have been cured of their myeloma. I mean, the progress in myeloma really has been amazing. I think the median survival today for newly diagnosed multiple myeloma, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is over 10 years? 
Yeah. So, you know, there's there's multiple data sets, but one of the most interesting one is University of Emory published their data with the VRD transplant and then adapted, you know, uh, maintenance consolidation with something like VRD according to risk. What they reported for patients without high risk factors, 13 years, with high risk factors, about eight years. And keep in mind, that's with VRD. It doesn't include even in, in most of those patients upfront are tumumab, certainly not bispecifics and CAR T cells. And I, I, I'd like to quote here our you know friend and good colleague, Ruben Mesa. Ruben Mesa about five years ago told me, hey, Rafael, you're a drug away or a combination away from being able to start curing a significant fraction of myeloma patients. I think at this point, we're now a combination more than a drug away. I think we have great tools and it's just how do we get smart to be able to achieve that for most patients? Well, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating field to watch. And uh, I want to thank you for sharing some of your insights with MRD, new therapies, bispecifics, CAR-T, and the progress in multiple myeloma. The guru, the hero, Rafael Fonseca on the Human Pulse. Thank you. Thank you, Chatty. Always a pleasure. 